0: How might you shift that without being too sort of David Brent from The Office or something like that? How, does it work the other way as well? Like,
1: I mean, you can't just force it. People will not laugh to command that they will, you know, it's not a, well, I, I made a joke, so why aren't you laughing? It's never a way to sort of get things going. <laughs>
0: You're listening to The Occupational Philosophers with Simon Banks and John Rice.
2: Hello and welcome again to another episode of The Occupational Philosophers, a not-so-serious business podcast to spark your curiosity, imagination, and creativity with a little bit of philosophy thrown in. And uh, I'm joined, as ever, by my co-host and co-collaborator, co-producer, Simon Banks. Simon, how are you today?
0: I'm very well, John. I'm very well, as always. Good to see you. Good to be here. Now, I'm interested, what's caught your curious eye this week?
2: Well, it's just a very simple little interesting article that I read. Uh, Susie Dent, who's the linguist and I think it's lexiographer, uh, who sort of has a fascination in language, as I do as well, the origin of words and the evolution of language. She's just got a lovely article about slips of tongue, such as uh, confusing bull in a china shop with bowl in a china shop so somebody saying like a bowl in a china shop or chickens coming home to roast which i quite like and going at something going at something hammer and thongs (laughs) and if life gets too much just curl up in the feeble position (laughs) however i add to that my favorite which is the one i particularly love, which was a work colleague of mine used to similarly make kind of uh, slips of the tongue like that. And he conflated a recipe for disaster and an accident waiting to happen. And he used to say, that is a recipe waiting to happen. And I used to love that.
0: They do do that a lot. And I don't disparage rugby league players in Australia. They, you know, they go on. they always say, they mix up all of their sayings like that all the time. And they're trying to be really wise. And um, I'm not even going to go there. (laughs) We'll cut that bit out. But I'm going to be prepared for that one next time. (laughs) How
2: about about you, Simon? What's caught your eye this week?
0: Well, what caught my ear was actually, our guests will know this, was a BBC radio presenter who was introducing the culture secretary, Jeremy Hunt, and he got a few words mixed up. (laughs) And it was very funny, and there's a realistic explanation for that. When you put two things close together, you can get the first letter crossed over. So (laughs) I won't go into that too much, but I know our our guests might talk to that a little bit more. What's caught my eye, John, is the spaghetti experiment. You might have seen this, you get like two bits of string and a few marshmallows and some bits of spaghetti. Make the highest tower that you can. Now this has been run across all types of geographies, so different countries and across all types of groups, being MBA students is one of them, uh CEOs and a bunch of ten year old school kids and everything in between. You might lead in question. Who do you think has the the highest tower? Uh,
2: I seem to remember. Is it? It's not who you think it's going to be. It's not going to be those high flying, super brainy Harvard grads. It's it's like the kids or something like that because they just throw themselves at it. Is it? Is it that
0: it? Yeah, absolutely. And what I liked about this is the reason that they're putting my other teams or MBA students, especially, perform poorly is because of this sense of status and social status and this way this group responds together. Whereas the kids, and so they do plan and they do all the things, you know, logically, but because of this sense of status and who's boss and who's not, which is these unwritten rules, where the kids get in and just go, okay, screw it start making and they make loads and loads of mistakes but they've got their own ecosystem where they just pile in and there's no sort of oh you're more important than me and they don't even think it through they just start making which goes to all the things we've spoken about before but the thing I never thought about was this sense of status but that's maybe a, a whole another show but that really caught my eye and across all geographies different countries in the world now John This is a guest episode, which is always so exciting. Who is the curious cat we have on this week?
2: As ever, I'm excited, if not a little humble, to introduce our guest today, Simon, because our guest is the director for the Institute of Cognitive Neuroscience at the University College London, and a fellow of the British Academy. She is an expert in cognitive neuroscience, studying particularly human vocal communication from speech and sound to social interactions. And nonverbal emotional expressions, and has become very well known for her work on laughter. She's a pioneering researcher in the science of laughter, and she's made some unexpected discoveries, including my favorite, that rats are ticklish. And that one tactic that's always guaranteed to get coo. <laughs> that's it. <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> one tactic that's guaranteed to get someone to laugh is to show them someone else laughing. She's appeared on UK TV many times, including The One Show, Sunday Brunch, Horizon, and has presented the Royal Institution Christmas Lectures. She's also represented Polytechnic of Central London in University Challenge, an old favorite of mine as well. In podcasting, she co-hosts the New Romantics, which I just loved <laughs> being of, of an age that would absolutely recognize that pun immediately, and is a series regular on the wonderful Infinite Monkey Cage. She's also an accomplished speaker Her TED Talks have amassed millions of views online. She's presented at the World Economic Forum, Royal Institute and the Wide UK Conference. She's performed science-based stand-up comedy and has appeared at the Hammersmith Apollo, the Bloomsbury Theatre and Latitude Festival, which I'm going to in a couple of weeks' time. I hope you're there again. <laughs> and if all that has not had you gasping in awe and exclaiming, Great Scott! then you soon will, as I do welcome our guest, the great Professor Sophie Scott.
0: Welcome.
1: That was a very kind introduction. Thank you.
0: <laughs> now, Sophie, we'll, we'll jump straight into it. What's caught your curious eye this week?
1: Um, I There was a very interesting paper I saw people talking about on Twitter which looked at how authentic emotions are. So you often describe yourself, you know, like, You're like truly terrified or truly happy, but you don't often say I'm I'm truly disgruntled. And there's there's an interesting relationship between the sort of intensity of emotions and sort of how we how we conceive of them happening to us. Almost, it's a it's something I've come across scientifically, and I hadn't seen people look at it the other way around. I thought it was rather nice.
2: So that's where people play at an emotion. So they're actually not. It's not as deeply felt as they're trying to convey.
1: There's something we haven't really dealt with at all in the emotion literature: is that sometimes you can be a little bit of something. So you can be a bit hacked off, or you could be furious. We think of that as all angry. Or you could be a bit upset, or you could be distraught, and we think of that as all sad. And actually, there is personally, you're extremely well aware of that. You totally know the difference, but we haven't really addressed it properly scientifically, I think. And I thought this was a really interesting paper, starting to try and unpack this, the kind of the relationship between the intensity and the the meaningfulness of the emotion and actually how how you're experiencing it you don't we're we're not experiencing emotions as categorical things like i'm angry or i'm not angry
0: yeah yeah so one might say i'm mildly hacked off but yesterday i was immensely hacked off next week i might be (laughs) slightly happy (laughs) (laughs) it sounds it
1: sounds ridiculously obvious but actually we we haven't we haven't navigated this at all scientifically really so it's good to see it starting
0: and would that be (laughs) like when people i read the other day there's only ever one reply that people say how when how are you and you go good would it be better to say i'm slightly good or i'm to a level i'm good not notice, a, a huge level.
1: You probably wouldn't say I'm <laughs> intensely good. That might start to sound a bit scary. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to use that good.
2: tomorrow. <laughs> intensely good, eyebrows extremely raised.
0: Extremely outstanding.
2: <laughs> Sophie, where are you in the world today? Uh, what could you see out your window, if you have one?
1: I, I am, I'm in central London, so I'm in Bloomsbury, WC1. And I look out of my window and I'm looking at the Queen Square, which is where... It's where the National Hospital was built. Actually, it's called Queen Square because it was built by, I think, Queen Charlotte for King George Thirty, who was, had mental think. health problems was, um, or neurological problems. So a whole kind of world of neuroscience has developed around it. It's, it's a very interesting place to be based.
0: we're going to go into what we call the dinner party round or dinner party introductions. Look, you might have been there. You go to a dinner party and you sat with some people gonna feel a little bit stiff before you get warmed up. And they might go, "What do you do? What do you do?" And you sort of go, oh, oh, "Set between these two, it's gonna, you know, going to feel like I'm sort of, you know, having to, you know, I've, I've drawn the short straw here." So John and I thought, imagine we're at a we're at a dinner party, but instead of asking them, "What do you do?" and "Where do you live?", we're going to ask them different types of questions. Now we actually. We do have some wine tonight because it's Friday night here. So I've uh, <laughs> I've given myself, and I've got a last nice South African wine that ar- arrived in my in my package. John's a teetotaler on tea, and I see you had a coffee. But imagine, imagine we've got the we've got the drinks, and we've sat down, and okay, oh, hi Sophie. And my first question to you is, what's giving you joy at the moment?
1: This is going to sound very silly, but my phone has an option where the the screen just the thing you see when you pick it up you can set it to shuffle and it just goes into your old photos and finds one and brings it up and it is continuously reminding me of happy things that have taken photographs of over the last sort of 15 years since i've had an iphone so it's it's a silly thing but it's regularly making me very very happy indeed
0: that's nice i'll have to check that out yeah Exactly. yeah literally i've just gone all right I'll, i won't do it now but I'll, <laughs> i'm going to do that before the night's out press, so. press
1: hold on the on the screen when it's on that and it will give you what it's one of the options shuffle is what you want oh, okay all right
0: thank you oh, God. Uh, technical information <laughs> as well what a great dinner guest yeah.
1: i've also that's it i've also
2: got to change the screen downtime for my children sophie any tips at all
1: Score. <laughs> so, i've i, I my I've, that's a battle i've lost comprehensively so. <laughs> okay all right. We don't use phones at meals, and that's really that's that's the it. only battle I won
2: there. Aside <laughs> to that, it's, it's very much melded in to, to the palm of the hand. What, uh, <laughs> do you have a hobby you're losing yourself in at the moment?
1: I, I, this is going to sound very, very boring indeed. I have two hobbies. I like to exercise, and I like to do and consume stand-up comedy. And that hey. has all the qualities of a hobby. I, I, it's, a, it's something I love doing doing it and watching it. I think it. it's
0: a, an interesting hobby. So I, I wouldn't put you, I wouldn't slander it as boring. So
2: <laughs> I'm going to uh, gonna have to ask Sophie. I'm a, quite a comedy connoisseur, as it were, in terms of I absorb it a lot. And a lot of stand up way back in the day. I used to go to the clubs in the early days of the circuit around the comedy store. Uh, some favorites of yours? Have you got some uh, ones that you really go back to?
1: I recently saw Kevin Hart. Wow. He was, he was in a really un... Prepossessing environment, which is the O2 Arena, which is enormous and it contains about thirty thousand people. It's just huge. And <laughs> this is not a great venue for comedy. No. But he was amazingly good. It, just fantastically good. It's, even in that and size. And I saw Joe Seinfeld there. Even, even in that size. I saw Joe Seinfeld the same place, but both amazing, just phenomenal comedians, able to kind of manage that un ridiculous space for comedy, but they made it work. Both of them made it work. But I also really like um there's a fantastic comedian called Sarah Pascoe. She's very, very funny. She's glorious. Yes. Yes. And James Acaster, also yeah. very, very funny. There's a, it, it's a great, there's a golden time, really, at the moment. There are so many good people and a much wider variety of people than I think we've had in London for a while, so it's been great.
0: Yeah, No. fantastic. Well, that might lead us into our, our next question. Who or what inspires you now?
1: I can give a very sort of boring family-based Question, sorry, answer to your question, which is that my father's father, who I never met, he died before I was born, that he was born in real poverty, but he could sing. And he worked for many years as a baker, because bakers get up early in the morning to do the bread and then you have the rest of the day free. And he would do that and move around, and, and everyone always needs bakers. And he just moved around the UK getting jobs in churches, because in those days, many churches would employ a professional chorister. So he just did that until he found somewhere where he actually got a proper job being a chorister and didn't have to bake <laughs> half the night as well. And that was at St. Paul's and he's always seemed oh, like wow. a really, um, he, he took a thing he could do and he ran with it, you know, and he did what he needed. He, it was a long old journey and it was only his determination and his ability to sing got him through that. And, uh, you know, I, I never met him, but he, seems like a. I wish i, I wish i had he seems like a very interesting very sort of determined focused person who just was prepared to walk the walk to get what he wanted you know make make the most of his talents and i find that quite inspirational
0: mm. well it's sort of like the original side hustle wasn't it yeah. so you've uh you know day job i'm a side hustle normally it's like i'm a tech entrepreneur but i'm a, i'm a yeah. chorister and then he <laughs> landed like you know where else st paul's would be the pinnacle wouldn't it Almost. exactly and-
1: no that was that was it he was then he was there are photographs of him wearing his sort of chorister's outfit looking happy as Larry. It's fantastic.
2: Yeah. With flour. With flour all down it, one
0: side.
1: Yeah. <laughs> 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 Put the bread to one side. Apparently you can do his hands. Wiping him from his face. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: well, one of the questions I had, uh, Sophie, is um, as I speak to people, they've always got something that they're, they're wrestling with. The questions or thoughts they're turning over. Yeah again in their head. So what big question are you wrestling with right now?
1: I am wrestling with what's the sequence of events in your brain that lead you to laughing? And particularly what's that sequence when you find something funny? What are the things that add in there? Because we know a lot now about how you hear other people's laughter. We are starting to learn. It's hard. We're starting to learn about physical production of your own laughter but when you're in an environment where you hear something funny now part of that is going to be social you know you're with other other people laughing there's the rhythm of the joke is telling you when to laugh but why what's the actual sequence in your brain how are you putting that together and we've started doing some brain imaging studies to try and look at the the kind of the spread from humor to sorry from laughter to humor in terms of perception but we're not that's still the guessing it's not getting to the what happens when you then actually laugh aloud and maybe we never will but i that's a thorny thing because it's difficult technically and it's going to be very interesting if we can get if we can actually get people to laugh aloud at something they find funny in the scanner actually kind of getting that sequence of events out is going to be tricky but it has to be possible
2: i have to ask obviously that uh I know a lot of the advances in neuroscience come from the ability to put people in an MRI scanner and look at blood flow, et cetera, and and then sort of see what's happening. Is that what you're gonna do? Then you put people in and then expose them to something that is gonna make them laugh?
1: Yeah, well, (laughs) we've we've, we've been doing that with the sort of the contagion of laughter. So laughter is is something that we find contagious. Interestingly, that's only true for humans. There are other animals that laugh but they don't laugh contagiously. Uh, right. Laughter can kind of jump the gap between humans. There's something about it's, we don't need physical contact for it to happen. So we, we get, that's how we're looking, that's how we're starting to look at the, we're trying to look at this, the production of laughter, what happens when something makes you laugh. But the, when you hear or see something funny and that makes you laugh, there's a few more steps in between. It's not just, you hear laughter and you join in, there is some kind of appraisal. There is some sort of, there's something beyond just contagion that's leading you to do that
2: yeah trying to assess no doubt some processes thinking about well should i laugh what will laugh to give those processes of does this connect me to this group of people or
1: so exactly so there's a huge social element and then there's also a sort of semantic or imagery based element so we've This is going to sound stupid. We've been doing this with with words. You're on the right show. so (laughs)
0: fantastic.
1: There's a a lot of different sort of approaches to understanding the psychology of humour where people sort of reverse engineer jokes and say, well, that's funny because there's a violation or it's funny because it makes you feel better. And there are a number of these different accounts. So taboo things can be funny. Insult things can be funny. Then there's things that just seem to be silly. Yeah, puns are funny. So there are other things that just seem to be funny on their own accord, like you know puns. They're not. There's no violation. There's no tabooness. And some things are just, just absurd. Why are absurd things funny? Like, do you remember the fish slapping dance in Monty Python? Yes. It's you know where they do. I mean, it's just it's beautifully funny, but it's it's just absurd. <laughs> and the formality of it, and then just being smacked with bigger fish. So these guys did a really clever thing where instead of saying or oh, here are jokes. Were they funny? They treated he- funniness as a sort of semantic property of things and they just gave people loads of different words in english make thousands of words and got people to rate how funny they were and the unfunny words you can imagine most words actually aren't funny and then words like murder aren't funny at all but the funny words they found and some words do seem to be funny some of those are taboo words so Boobs is a funny word because it's a bit naughty. <laughs> I'm laughing. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm laughing because insult... Simon's laughing. <laughs> exactly, contagion. It's happening. <laughs> um, insult words are funny. So idiot is funny. It's a bit funny. And then there are some speech sounds that just seem to be funny. So ooh is a funny speech sound. Boobs is funny partly because it's rude and also because it's oo got ooh in it. And K sounds are funny. If you remember the Sunshine Boys, there's what at the start it Walter Matag has this whole speech about how K is a funny sound, cockroach is funny. And he's right. <laughs> so people find the word flank funny or ankle. And then some words just seem to be funny because they're fun to say. So bebop is funny. So we, we'd sort of, we've been using these. And one of the things we're finding is that there does seem to be more than just hearing you know hearing a funny word and hearing because we add laughter on to make people you know see what how the laughter modulates this laughter makes things seem funnier but you also get these brain areas to do with sort of imagery and understanding that are being recruited so there's and actually yeah visual imagery so people are maybe sort of you know the part of what finding ankle funny is maybe thinking about the sound of it and maybe the image of it but also someone else seemed to find it funny so how can i find a way of finding that funny myself so that's kind of that's the sort of thing we're starting to get pick away at but it's just, it's it's tricky it's hard
0: what a question you're wrestling with like my <laughs> question today is like the shoe: how do i get the the cork out of this bottle because they're normally a screw top <laughs> i was <laughs> like going, oh I, was, I need some I, new i, was I saying, some new questions i've <laughs>
2: got i've got to get, get my boiler fixed i mean that's the question of my, 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 my.
0: Now we may have I'm interested because you've already covered a lot of this. if someone says, "How would you describe what you do?" how would you answer?" and there might be another way to if you were sort of sitting in the middle of three or four different things, what are those things?
1: So what I normally tell people is I'm interested in vocal communication, how we do doing what we're doing now, and how our brains make this happen so how do i how do our brains how does my brain make it possible for me to you know do what I want to do when I'm talking?" And how do your brains decode, not just the words I'm saying, but all the other information that I include in my voice, which of course includes things like emotion and nonverbal things like laughter. So I find it useful to situate it in the brain because it's a a sort of useful way of framing everything, but it's never someone on their own, it's brains, it's interacting brains that I study.
2: The last question for me, Sophie, was just why are people so fascinated in neuroscience right now? Almost. Prior to wanting to talk to yourself, I was very conscious of, you know, in any bookshop, I just see Anil Seth and David Eagleman and everything about neuroscience and the brain and thinking fast, thinking slow. And what is the fascination right now, do you think? Or has it always been there? Is it just that we know more and, and there's more fascinating things to share with people?
1: I have to say right at the top, I also have written a book on the brain. So I know. brain, 10 I've... things you need to know. <laughs> Apologies. <laughs> I should say, because I'm, no, I'm no, 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 reading no. it. <laughs> that's kind of God,
0: Shame on you. Yeah,
1: <laughs> but the, it, Actually, it's fascinating how recently we have, as humans, been interested in brains. We've been studying the heavens for much longer than we've been studying inside our heads. And that's partly because it's hard. It's hard to study brains. For a long time, they weren't really thought to do anything interesting. They were thought to be you know like a no one maybe something to cool blood down and because when you feel emotions, you feel them in your body it doesn't it doesn't feel like it's happening in your head it's you know the, the, the body seemed a lot more important than whatever was going on there. And it's really followed the development of technology that meant that we could start asking questions about the body and cellular structure at all. That even when we did that, it took a long time to be able to get to brains because it's hard, brains are sort of soft like a plumage and they're hard to deal with post mortem. It's hard to do things with them. So it was only sort of at the end of the 19th century that people realised, people like um, Cajal realised that there were cells in the brain and they're these weird cells that are really long and have these long projections and seem to make connections across the whole brain. So that's pretty recent and again in the 19th century people started asking questions about behavior in the brain and the french and german neurologists like paul broker and carl Wernicke started to try and map problems people had in life with things that apparently had changed about their brain by looking at the brain at death so now you're not doing microscopic studies you're looking at the whole brain and they started to map together things like you know where language was in the brain got pretty much mapped out then but in the night in the 20th century, we got our hands on techniques that actually let us look at healthy brains that were intact and working. Things like positron emission tomography, functional magnetic resonance imaging that you mentioned. And they let us look at brains in action. We don't have to, we can, we're we still interested in what's happening to patients who've got problems with their brains. A lot of what we're doing is trying to be relevant to that. But you can learn about the brain by also studying an intact, healthy brain and doing it in a non-invasive way. And that really kind of blew up the whole field in that suddenly you could answer questions that had seemed impossible. When I was doing my PhD you know, in 1990, I would not believe you, you told me that even in you know, seven years time, this would be very, not only possible, but very common. So I think that's been behind it, that as a science, the whole field has just exploded and we are making discoveries at a, at a very interesting rate.
0: What I also notice is if you're in a workshop, and obviously, Sophie, this would already be assumed with yourself, but if you're giving a little bit of uh, information, everyone, you drop in the word, and here's the neuroscience on that. Everyone jumps up and pays attention. If <laughs> you say, oh, here's the scientific research, yeah, whatever, blah, blah, blah. it's yeah. uh, here's the neuroscience. Everyone's like, just what John said, ooh, tell me.
1: <laughs> it's, we're having our day in the sun. You know, 15 years ago, it was genetics was having that, you know, was the sort of the the explanation people were really keen on. So something will be coming along. And I'm painfully well aware that you don't stay in the sun forever. But while it's happening, I feel it's a positive thing for the science. People are interested in how their brains work.
0: So the Occupational Philosophers was born of the desire to explore the interplay between Curiosity, creativity, and imagination, as with some philosophy thrown in, and that we talk a lot about play on this program and approaching things with a playful mindset, which we believe is, uh, and the you know the science, not sure it's a neuroscience, but the science tells us is much better for creativity and innovation. So our, my question is, do laughter and play come from the same place?
1: Yes, I think they do. All mammals play, and. When there's a sound associated with that, Panksepp, who's a guy who did really beautiful work with rats, I have to say he was the rat tickler, sadly not me, Yang Panksepp, <laughs> yeah, he, um, he, said, he described laughter as like it's an. it functions as an invitation to play. It shows that your behavior is intended to be playful. And that's true even of rats. So if you devocalize a rat so it can't make any sounds at all, it will still play with other rats, but it's more likely to get bitten. Because it can't show that it's being playful, and the play can get out of control, they're play fighting and it can become real fighting, and that's pretty nuanced for rats, if you think about what that's doing for us, so yeah, play and laughter are very intimately linked, and I think that a lot of what do we th- playfulness in humans, which we mark with laughter, is sort of indicating a particularly almost like a kind of safe environment where you can do things in a silly way or a fun way or a way that's not intended to be rude or unacceptable. It's naturally ambiguous and things can go wrong, but that's sort of what people are trying to navigate with their use of laughter very frequently. The question about creativity and play and laughter, I think it's, I I can't speak to it as clearly, but I think one of the things that one of the elements of creativity does seem to be to not be rigid and boxed in in your thinking and if one of the functions of play is almost by definition to remove those kind of boundaries then you are and to be imaginative and different and trying to be novel in how you're behaving then you can see a strong element of that
2: yeah and it's a good segue actually uh sophie because that that's the the thought we're having is as you said earlier, the work around laughter, you said that it's a social behavior, you said it was highly contagious. The good quote, which is 30 times more likely to laugh with others than on our own. Is there some link to that with creativity as well? If you're putting people together and some person is being wildly creative, is there something where that might spark such inspiration in others around them in the same way? Can we catch it?
1: I mean, I think it's certainly possible. One of the things I find very interesting is about how human we find out by doing. So I find out more about what I think about laughter because you ask me questions than I would if I just sat and sort of pondered on it because other people are, aren't going to ask you by, by definition, they're going to prompt you with things that you haven't thought of because they thought of them. So there is something inherently creative about talking about a conversation and if you move that expressly in a situation where you are trying to do that then you are going to be generating novel ideas by asking questions by making prompts of each other but i'm not saying you can't be creative on your own and you can think of you can think of writing as having that element but you're always writing for somebody you're not writing just into the void so there's always an audience there's always a person there's always some kind of interaction when you are doing something like talking or writing and i think that's Because talking is primarily a social behaviour. You don't do it when you're on your own. It's going to naturally live in that environment where you're with other people. So I think it's also all those other things are possibly true. What people are saying is going to matter. But just the the function of other people being there, prompting you to, to generate things will inherently be more creative, I think.
0: I often talk about it like the the old-fashioned pinball machines when you had the the two little buttons on the side and the handles, and it pings all over the place, and I always think like all those other people in your group, if you're engaging in that space, you're offering energy and you're not quite sure where it's going to end, but that's exciting, that's the exciting bit, and it flies all over the place and things light up, and for me, that's that exciting piece around the collaboration if that's the right word to say it or being open talking listening receiving and building on that and
2: sophie is there something then with neuroscience that can tell us what's happening in the brain when people are in a creative mode in the same way that you can see what's happening when people are speaking and laughing etc
1: there's some work on flow when you seem to get really into a a sort of different state of doing something of the classic example would be free form wrapping that's what people have often looked at but of course that's that's not the only form you know it's not the only kind of flow behavior you can you know you can be writing writing and it just feels like it's pouring out of you that's overlapping with elements of creativity it's not exactly i think mapping on on the full kind of range of behaviors so i think one of the problems we can break it down into different kinds of creativity as well we can ask questions about like problem solving being able to think yourself out of a set there are studies on that but i think that kind of more interactive pattern that you're talking about how would a team actually do that together you would need multiple scanners scanning people working on something together and people are starting to do that we are still people call it hyperscanning, and there's a technique called functional near infrared spectroscopy that lets you do brain imaging studies while people are actually having much more normal interactions. So I think that's going to be the future of actually looking at at interacting brains, doing creative tasks together.
2: Can't wait for my next team session. I'm going to link them up. I'm going (laughs) to hyper scan them. (laughs) Stop moving your heads. Just talk to each other.
0: Now look, I've got a question on the flip side of this as well. And look, we're, we've always, when we started this, to be a not so serious business podcast. Just from the fact that you know, I think seriousness is catching as well, and I think there's too much seriousness in the world. So, if you're an organisation or team where everything feels too serious, and you might, for reference, for anyone listening, you go into that organisation and you can sort of feel the seriousness. How might you shift that without being too sort of David Brent from the <laughs> office or something like that? How, it, does it work the other way as well? Like,
1: I mean, you can't just force it. People will not laugh to command that they will, you know, it's not a, I, well, I I made a joke, so why aren't you laughing? It's never a way to sort of get things going. <laughs>
0: it's, that's John all the time. That's, that's, a,
2: that's a way to deal with a stand-up heckle, isn't it? <laughs>
1: <laughs> if, if you look at how people, how leaders use laughter, it is very interesting that, like, because people will follow the laughter of a of the more senior person if they are prepared to accept that person as senior. If they, David Brent's a good example where people are like, I think not. <laughs> it can be one of the more effective things that leaders do. Obama was a very good. User of laughter, laughter as a sort of well, he was a very funny person. He was a skilled stand up, but is still a, not in the past tense. But it's interesting to use him using laughter when interacting with people. Bill Clinton, there's a fantastic clip of him using mm, laughter to diffuse a really difficult situation with a quite drunk and angry Boris Yeltsin by just pretending everything Boris Yeltsin said was hilarious and it works ah. really well. And it works,
2: it's a great clip. Oh,
1: it's fantastic. And he's really careful not to laugh at Yeltsin but and he does things like what's he laughs the first time when boris yeltsin simply says his name he laughs like oh that's me you know and it's interesting because he's senior it gets everybody's laughing in the core and then and quite quickly boris yeltsin starts laughing and he doesn't behave like he's being laughed at he's like yeah i am hilarious and a very tense situation is diffused and that's not creativity that's using laughter cleverly but i think it is a it's a feature of skilled leadership that you can navigate things and, and laughter can be very very useful in the workplace. You don't want people laughing all the time, but it's a great way of dealing with stressful situations. It's a great way of making people feel more together as a team and for building that kind of environment, like you say, where something, you know, you might want a a more kind of open, creative thought process to be going on. It could be a way of, one way to find yourself into that. But even if it's not about creativity, I think having points in the day when your colleagues have an opportunity just to socially interact and, and laughter will happen naturally. That's probably the more important parts yeah. of the day when people are maintaining their social bonds and feeling more close to the people that they're working with.
0: So you could think about if we've got a really serious workplace, which can happen, and I've went on into those, more human interaction and this, whatever will happen will follow. Yeah. So a little bit less time in a cubicle, a bit more time with
1: Exactly, each other. exactly. It, it's a social emotion. Find the social spaces where it can live. Build them.
2: This thought experiment is not so much a thought experiment it's actually called listeners questions which uh, you could probably guess what this is that we told listeners that we had someone who was fascinated with brains coming on the show and we have been overwhelmed with the response we've uh, too many letters to count so i'm just going to dig into the mailbag here see what we've got some great listeners out there so here we go should i start with this one i hear you love brains i know that zombies love brains too and I've been studying this field and whether whether you've trekked your family tree to see if there are some connections to zombies. Uh, that is from Travis, who's a zombie fanatic and head of the Boing Boing Conspiracy Society in the Northern Territories. Jeez, where did he come from? <laughs> so Sophie, I mean, don't feel obliged to answer that. Do you, do you want to have a go at that one, Sophie?
1: Very quickly, there is something very interesting about our cultural interest in zombies because actually the things that zombies are sort of like the, the behavior that zombies show, kind of stumbling around, be able to move but not able to sort of think and they behave in a very basic way, you don't often find that following head injuries. What you tend to find is the opposite, which is that people can think but they can't act. It's much, you know, it's much more likely you find it hard to move on, the, to, to, you know, to, to act on the world, perhaps in a specific way, perhaps in a more general way. So it's kind of an inverse of what actually happens. It's the situation where you do find zombie-like behavior is people take things like ketamine. But I'm putting that to one side. I'm talking about things that actually go wrong <laughs> with your brain. You're much more likely to be, like, uh, locked in, to be apparently in a coma, but actually be awake and unable, totally unable to move than to be zombie-like.
2: Yeah, and you've never, have you have you studied any zombies at all, Sophie, in your own work? Is that-
1: uh, well, I mean, probably inadvertently, yes, but they're not. They've kept mean party, me, so, so, yeah. yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> now, as our next uh, letter, let me just sort of open this up. Okay. Uh, your work into laughter made me realise my husband, Frank, hasn't laughed for years, and he has a face like he's deeply concentrating after sucking on a sharp lemon. He's about as much fun as swimming in a bath of tripe. Are there any quick solutions or shall I just leave him? This is from Beryl in Loughton in Essex. I don't know if it's Beryl. A, I, Beryl. I, I, is this the right, is that the right format?
2: The quality of the letters is appalling.
1: I can't give you advice, Beryl, without probably talking to you more. But I think there are a lot of reasons why people's, People laugh differently from each other. One of the main things we found from studying variations, individual variations in laughter, is that the, the single biggest variation that we encounter is how much people think they laugh. And so some people really do think they laugh a lot, and some people really don't report laughing very much. Now, we're not always accurate in recognizing that, but it certainly suggests that it's something along which people really do vary a great deal. And he may just be somebody who's sitting down at the far end of one of those spectra. There are also things that can interact with that. Type. We've been looking at laughter and depression. I'm not going to diagnose anybody with depression, but that could be something else to think about.
0: Or could he also be sitting there Sorry. thinking, I'm a real funny guy, but he's just not coming out? Like that?
1: So. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually hilarious, but I'm not going to. Okay, do that. all right. Yeah.
0: Okay. All right, John, well, let's, we've got a t- couple more letters. Yeah.
2: Well, I, I was thinking I'll just go to this last one, I think, Simon, so okay, for, yeah. for time. Yeah, I've just opened this one. Let's have a look at this one. I hear you love Brian's. Brian's? Who's oh, your greatest of all time? Oh,
0: Jesus. The typo. He Who's it your out, greatest of all
2: time? Brian. Yeah, he he goes on to offer a selection here, Sophie. Brian Blessed, loud hailer. Brian Cox, the physicist. Brian Jones, ACDC singer. Brian Wilson, a beach boy. Brian Cox, the one from Succession, not the physicist. And Brian Helveston from Woi, Woi Australia, who is the head of the local Amateur Dramatic Arts Society, 10-year head of the PTA, and also a fine butcher. This week's special is lamb chops for twelve ninety nine a kilo. That's from Susan in Woy Woy, Australia. I'm terribly sorry, Sophie. She's got it completely
0: wrong. <laughs> <And> Susan <laughs> also has the last letter in her name, Susan H. <laughs> and she's asking about Brian Helveston. Susan.
1: Right. I'm going with the butcher then. I think there's a, yeah, that sounds like <laughs> top Brian work. <laughs>
2: so, Brian Helveston, the greatest of all time, Brian's. There we go. Yeah. We have a so week. I just... Really apologies, Sophie, it's just the quality of <laughs> listeners that we have.
0: But if you're in Woi that's a very good place for lamb at the moment. So duck in and see. You. Brian helps. What's one thing you couldn't do without in your life right at this moment?
1: Music.
2: <laughs> we are building the Occupational Philosopher's Mani Gesto. What one thing of all your learning do you think should be included?
1: how social laughter is it's intensely social you don't laugh randomly you don't laugh at just anybody so it's really interesting to think about the people that you do laugh with because they're probably the people you like most
0: oh i like that one what a what a, what a that's going to go on a t-shirt okay and a little motivational <laughs> saying now is there a book outside of your own uh, your own book uh, and books that we should be reading
1: um there's a really good book by Robin Dunbar called Gossip Grooming and the Evolution of Language. And he has this theory that human language, one of the functions of human language is that we've replaced, you know, if you're a Barbary macaque, you'll spend like a massive amount of your day grooming other Barbary macaques and getting groomed. Cause that's how you, you make and maintain your social network and your position within the network. And we do the same with talking and laughing. And in fact, Dunbar thinks that we were laughing. La- laughter was something that we were doing together to sort of build a bridge that language could then be used on top of.
0: So laughing came first before phonetic speech, if I'm using my language, right?
1: Yes, okay. la- laughter is older than us, yeah.
2: And finally, Sophie, um, we're imagining it's the twilight years and you're being taken into your retirement home. It's a lovely home. It's a lovely retirement <laughs> home. Good, Great views. Still over Bloomsbury Square. And as the nurse takes you into the lounge where all the residents are sit sitting, she says, Hi everyone, this is Sophie. She's, how would you like to be introduced?
1: Oh my God, this is a terrifying thought, isn't it? Uh, I can't think of anything that won't make everybody immediately <laughs> hate me. Um,
0: you have to choose something. She's got a
1: PhD. Choose something, though. Um, <laughs> she,
2: she's <laughs> top dog. Shove that in you. Uh, cup of on tea. On yeah. She's
1: really bossy. She's really bossy. <laughs> I am really, really bossy. She's very pleased to meet you i don't know i honestly that's...
2: is that an authentic emotion
1: <laughs> they'll find out soon enough the terrible truth it's
2: mildly authentic yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> we're not playing bridge this afternoon we're playing dominoes
0: get over exactly.
1: it yeah. <laughs> i'm giving you a talk sit down and shut up yeah
0: so just to wrap up our show today what are you up to next what's on the horizon
1: the horizon is to try and get a grant to study how we use laughter over the lifespan and how it changes and becomes more complex as we go from babies who understand laughter and use laughter a lot all the way through to older adults.
2: And where can we find you, Sophie? How do people connect with you? Find uh, your your book, which is brilliant, as I say. A talk, uh, yeah. How do talks, talks uh, you by your, your
1: drinks? Twitter and Instagram. I'm. I'm at Sophie Scott on both of those. And um, yes, I'd be delighted. Get in touch. You feel free to ask any questions.
0: And are you on the cool person's business network of LinkedIn? Can people find you there as
1: well? I am. You can also find me on LinkedIn. I'm not very good at LinkedIn, but I am there.
0: Okay. <laughs> right. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining us. And that, that's literally the fastest hour I think we've ever done on the show. And when I read your introduction, I always feel so humble slash ashamed of so little I've achieved. So, <laughs>
1: so I've, I've achieved very little else, I wouldn't yeah, uh, No,
0: today, like uh, what, a, yeah. what an absolute uh, like a renaissance person we're uh, across so many different things and the ultimate polymath and what a what a great sort of bunch of research you're doing and yeah what an absolute delight it was to have you on our show and i feel really joyous uh, in you. many ways that uh, so many ways that you've joined us
1: so thank you very yeah. much for inviting i really enjoyed it that, that was a great discussion thank you
0: well
2: thank you sophia echo everything simon says best wishes and hope to catch up at some point soon
1: i hope to meet you in real life one day take care bye-bye thank you thank you
2: Hey, Simon. That was a fabulous chat with Sophie Scott there, Professor Sophie Scott. It really was great, Scott. I mean, there was some amazing stuff that we riffed on there. <laughs> boom, boom, I know. And as ever, my brain has expanded. She can study it. She could study that and see, see how the blood flow has gone off the scale in my head. Takeaways. The big takeaway for you this time around
0: yeah i'm gonna go with that one of people will follow the laughter of a leader and i think it's very easy to be caught up in you know say the the day-to-day or heavy concentration and all that sort of stuff but i also think don't forget hang on well i'll get this together also <laughs> don't forget that <laughs> i'm staring off into the distance stroking my imaginary take beard take your time so, <laughs> take your time
2: i mean your mind's been filled up right. with, with quite a lot for the last hour
0: <laughs> okay so i don't want to belittle that you know work is hard meeting sales targets is hard managing teams can be really hard however if you want to create an environment where people feel the best version of themselves let's say that and make people feel relaxed and in enjoying themselves and being their best they will follow your laughter so in summary coming around i'm going to come around and circle back think around your energy think around the energy you bring into the office you come in and go blah on everyone or do you come in and create a sense of where people It's a, it's a little bit more lighthearted, but not unacknowledging that work is tough. So I don't want to be, yeah, be happy every day, blah, blah, blah. But there's something there. Leaders, what you do matters, and they will follow your laughter. And would you rather have a team where people are enjoying themselves doing that hard stuff, or just having a shit time doing the shit stuff?
2: Yeah. And that's not an invitation to tell shit jokes at work if... <laughs>
0: No, I was trying, <laughs> trying to frame it there. Is that, is that the <laughs> yeah, summary? That's David <laughs> don't yeah, don't yeah. tell shit
2: jokes, <laughs> but create an environment that has a certain levity to it and bring that energy to it. Yeah.
1: Yes.
2: Maybe sort of leading off of that there. My, my big takeaway there in terms of what resonated was uh, the moment Sophie said laughter is uh, in mammals is seen as an invitation to play. And I thought that was really interesting because suddenly you go, well, maybe laughter is the gateway drug to everything else, and that if we can encourage an environment which has that levity in it and leads to laughter, well, the laughter is the invitation to play, to play together. That playful uh, thing is where boundaries are removed and people that can then move into more of a creative, collaborative state and start to do great stuff together. So, yeah, I think maybe it's start with laughter and think, well, how do I create that to allow people to lower the boundaries, lower the barriers, and get into that playful state? with the invitation of laughter.
0: Yeah, when we think playful state, it's also solving problems at speed because your mind's in a different space. So it's not playful for the sake of playful. How do we actually you know, nail some of this stuff down, those big gnarly challenges we want to smash out of the park? And I think it's a really good thing. How do I create that environment? Think of it steps. What's the first step where I can enable? And it might even be, let's say you're getting together. The first step might start two weeks before. So it might be how do I start to introduce a bit of a sense of make people feel open to laughing, a little bit of levity, a little bit of fun before the thing even starts. Yeah, that wine, John. I'm not. I'm I'm getting a bit (laughs) loose-lipped here. (laughs) I've hardly touched it, but I don't know. Something. Whereas
2: I'm completely wired after three cups of coffee. Come on. What do we learn? What do we learn quick? Ah, right. Well, let's wrap it up there then, Simon. So, what do we want people to do?
0: Well, look, number one, if you have liked the show and you think, well, that's a little bit different, but in a good way, tell your friends, share it with your friends at work, put it in the suggestion box, put a little picture of uh, just of us, just little John and I, up on the the notice board, and go, hey, have a listen. All right, I'm the one with the surfboard under the arm. John's the one with the bowler hat. So there you go. That, that's the number one thing you can do: tell your friends and. If you really liked it, you can even go onto iTunes or Spotify. You can even do it now. Do it now. Just feel the spirit. In you. Go on. Leave a little review. Like, I can really yeah. Do it. I really like the show. It makes a show get a little bit more seen in the ratings. Goes up. We get more occupational philosophers on board. We're going to create a movement of right creativity, curiosity, and a little bit more philosophy. Good for life. Good for the workplace. Whew, I am I am on one. Okay, So that's the first thing we want you to do. That's a good vintage you've got there, Simon. <laughs> yeah, 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 South Africa. Yeah. <laughs> Lovely.
2: In the meantime, we want you to stay curious, to make stuff, to have fun, to play more,
0: and... Wherever you are listening to this in, in the week, whether it's a Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or weekend, we want you to go out and date life because life is an amazing thing.
2: That was a bit Tony Robbins, that end bit, wasn't it? What's happened there? How much have you been drinking?
0: Now, if you look, it's only a little, it's only a little, it's like not even a quarter gone. I don't know, something, it's (laughs) awoken something in me, John. I think I might drink a little bit more (laughs) (laughs) at the beginning of the day. (laughs) (laughs) You've
2: awoken a giant within.